Good afternoon. And uh, Nate, thank you again for providing me with this opportunity to share my work with members of William and Mary's Law School, Center for the Study of Law and Markets, as well as the William and Mary community as a whole with respects to the topic on racial capitalism and college sports. So I'd like to begin first by uh, discussing the impetus for this ongoing project. And so it was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York's 2017 corruption and bribery investigation involving a high number of high-profile men's college basketball teams. As you can see and may recall, there were a number of high-profile universities entangled in this federal probe. In fact, according to the U.S. Attorney, since 2015, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and the Federal Bureau of Investigation have been investigating the criminal influence of money on coaches and student athletes who participate in intercollegiate athletics governed by the NCAA. Incidentally, this investigation yielded two interrelated schemes. The first scheme named the college bribe, the coach, the coach bribery scheme which involves student athletes, advisors, including financial advisors and business managers, paying bribes to assistant and associate head basketball coaches at division one programs, as well as directly to the student athletes and or to their family members. In exchange for the bribes, the coaches, according to the unsealed indictment, agreed to pressure and exert influence over student athletes under their control to retain the services of the bribe payers once the athletes entered the NBA. In the second scheme, which refers to an athletic company as Company One scheme, which we would eventually learn was Adidas, involved a senior executive at the company working in connection with corrupt advisors uh, who funneled bribe payments to high school age players and their families to secure those players' commitment to attend universities sponsored by Adidas rather than universities sponsored by athletic rival athletic apparel companies such as Nike and Under Armour most notably, as well as those players would promise to ultimately sign agreements to be represented by the bribe payers once the student athletes entered the NBA. That said, a deep dive into the unsealed indictments revealed that the players and their families received monies anywhere from $1,000 to at least $9,500, and in some cases, more than $18,000. While coaches would, re would receive funds anywhere from $10,000 for securing a student athlete's commitment to play for their program to more than ninety thousand dollars to funnel to players and their families to ensure their commitment to play at their respective university. That said, one of the things I wanted to understand about this particular investigation within the context of big time college sports was what kind of economic system allows for such corruption to occur where the majority of individuals who do the actual performative work are mostly black males and have to resort to such tactics in order to receive compensation for their labor, which in which said, and that said, 
The system by and large is openly, overwhelmingly governed by white men and historically white institutions of higher education that allows them to quote unquote legally profit from this. So then this led me to, led me on a quest to investigate the academic and mainstream literature to explore how this topic has been discussed. Um, and so as you can see, I kind of went down a rabbit hole <laughs> with respects to slavery, capital, the histories of slavery, history, history of American capitalism. So I want to acknowledge that while scholars and sports pundits have pointed out the contradiction between commercial, the commercialization of college sports and the professed ideals of higher education, whereby they have used terms such as slavery, exploitation, cartel, and most recently indentured servitude, I had not come across a single source or body of work that not only discussed the historical ties between chattel slavery, capitalism, economic development in the United States, but also how the philosophical foundations and the racial dimensions of the aforementioned systems continue to influence many colleges and universities in a manner whereby its present day relevance remains partially dependent upon the commercial exploitation of black people. Indeed, all one has to do is look at the decision by many colleges and universities to jumpstart the 2020-2021 football season during a pandemic to see whether or not does money matter. So as I hope you're able to glean from the current slide, I tapped into a very diverse body of work for this project. More specifically, in addition to immersing myself in the various bodies of historical scholarship examining 17th and 18th century American slavery, capitalism, and economic development, I also thought it was paramount to tap into the history of higher education literature emphasizing its founding ties to slavery. That said, I also thought it was important to conduct a genealogical analysis of the term amateurism, which is the policy governing intercollegiate athletics in the United States. For amateurism not only prescribes an institution's involvement, but also determines a student athlete's eligibility for participation. So while the NCAA defines amateurism as, quote, a line of demarcation between student athletes who participate in the collegiate model, whereby they are not simply uncompensated, but are more, but are motivated primarily by education and the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived from their involvement, end quote, my, my genealogy of amateurism reveal that, quote, nobody in colonial or antebellum America ever claimed that sports built character, inculcated the spirit of fair play, or shaped the nation's identity, according to historian S.W. Pope, or that amateurism, according to classic scholar David C. Young, was one, was one thing that the ancient Greeks never had a word for, end quote. In fact, according to Young, ancient 
athletes regularly competed for valuable prizes in games before they reached the Olympics, and they openly profited from athletics whenever they could. Incidentally, in order for an individual to be considered an athlete in America before the mid-20th century, said individual had to be a white male who, quote, flouted the rules of social acceptability by gravitating toward activities deemed inappropriate for a gentleman, end quote, according to distinguished history professor Richard O. Davies. In fact, the line demarcating an amateur athlete from a professional athlete during the mid-19th century was class. Ironically, amateurism was originally developed to signify a bourgeoisie lifestyle as a badge of middle and upper class identity. That said, if the goal of the NCAA's amateurism policy is to protect student athletes from, quote, exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises, end quote, what form of capitalism is it and its member institutions engaged in whereby it can simultaneously enforce an inherently duplicitous policy, historically speaking, and have the power to sanction participating institutions and individuals at every level. Advanced by the late political scientist Cedric Robinson as a way to contest traditional Marxist views that capitalism was simply a revolutionary negation of feudalism, or that capitalism is only a system of labor expropriation and exploitation according to class, racial capitalism, according to Robinson, posits that capitalism is an economic system that relies on race as its guiding epistemology, ordering principle, organizing structure, moral authority, economy of justice, commerce and power, end quote. Likewise, racial capitalism, according to legal scholar Nancy Long, refers to the process of deriving social and economic value from the racial identity of another person. So within the marketplace of higher education, we know that historically the inclusion of Black people has been exploitive, fraught, contradictory, and contentious. First, beginning with the accrual of racial value from Black bodies through the exploiting of their labor to found, finance, and develop colleges and universities during the colonial and antebellum eras, to the transformation of the formal inclusion of African Americans into a, a commodity whereby racial diversity, according to Long, reflects and reifies the premium that privileged segments of American society places on diversity both within and beyond institutions of higher education. Also, according to Oriad, and I'll, I'll uh, get to that in a second, but he argues that the inclusion for um, Black male student athletes and traditionally white institutions of higher education was driven less by progressive principles than the need was driven less by the principles, progressive principles and 
than, than by the need to win games. Thus meaning the commercialization of college sports enhanced the pressure on colleges to field winning teams. This in turn propelled colleges to recruit and obtain the services of the most talented student athletes regardless of color. While the moral desire to end segregation may have prompted many to seek the integration of organized college sports, the economic, the economic interests of others, including institutions of higher education, may have been the primary importance, according to legal scholar Davis. Indeed, many observers point to the 1970 beatdown at the hands of the University of South Southern California's racially integrated football team as the final straw that led the University of Alabama's head coach, Paul Bear Bryant, to integrate his all-white football team. So, in the case of the NCAA and its member institutions' ability to extract racial value and accrue racial capital from African-American student-athletes vis-a-vis big-time college sports, I contend that the mutually reinforcing associational economic advantages accorded to both entities as a result of their federal tax-exempt status as nonprofit organizations, along with the successful commercialization of, the, of men's Division I basketball and college football at the S FBS level, in conjunction with the global marketability of black male athleticism explains why the former is able to exploit the latter. In other words, because the NCAA and its member institutions meet the internal revenue services criteria for tax exemption status as a result of branding college sports as activities central to campus life rather than as a and in and of themselves, student athletes by legislative fiat are classified as amateurs rather than as employees, which prohibits them from receiving compensation for their involvement in big time college sports. In addition, the federal tax status preference accorded to the NCAA and its member institutions allow them to avoid paying unrelated business income taxes on items such as naming rights to athletic facilities, as well as all passive income from royalties and licensing income from the sale of logos, images, or game highlights. Also, according to sports economist Andrew Zimblis, the principal areas of tax privileges for college sports includes the ability of college sports programs to issue facility bonds which has tax exempt interest to the holders and the ability to avoid taxation on activities that are unrelated to the purpose of the tax exemption held by US colleges and universities, end quote. So together, the federal tax exempt status and the amateurism designation not only metaphysically transforms student athletes into disposable commodities, whose primary purpose is to physically underwrite the commercial viability of men's college, of men's division one basketball and FBS football respectively. But more important, the nonprofit status of the NCAA and its member institutions, along with 
the amateur status of student athletes ensures that both entities are able to derive profits from the latter's athleticism in perpetuity, which in many ways was at the heart of the O'Bannon versus the NCAA case, which was recently decided and I will discuss shortly. In other words, in the case of major college sports, its value is as an entertainment product, a commercial business and institutional branding mechanism relies on the fact that the NCAA is a cartel and a monopsony as it is both the sole content provider of intercollegiate athletics, which allows it to negotiate exclusively with cable television companies and streaming services for lucrative television contracts while as a monopsony or the primary buyer of youth athletic talent, the NCAA is not legally bound to require colleges and universities to offer athletic scholarships that cover the total cost of attendance or guarantee four years of funding. Consequently, the foregoing becomes the structural baseline for economic exploitation and I would argue 21st century institutional slavery as the supply side forces and the demand side forces of big time college sports compels individuals who are either interested in attending college at a reduced cost by earning an athletic scholarship or becoming a professional basketball or football player to non-negotiably sell their talent to the NCAA monopsony and buy room and board training and visibility from the NCAA monopoly. Another way in which big time college sports exploit student athletes is through the NCAA's requirement that student athletes upon their enrollment transfer their ownership interests in their name, image and likeness, also known as nil or their right of publicity. Even long after the student athlete has ceased attending the university. According to the NCAA's 2019 handbook governing division one sports, student athletes are quote, not allowed to use their name, image or likeness to promote or endorse commercial products or service, even if he or she is not paid to participate in the activities, end quote. Even their institution is permitted to use the student athletes images to promote sanctioned athletic events. Thus, the aforementioned right of publicity restriction imposed on the division one student athlete also extends to an athlete creating their own business, regardless of whether the business is related to athletics and includes things such as autographs, speeches, social media endorsements, the sale of merchandise with their name image or likeness and representation. While exceptions to the NCAA rules governing Division I student athletes rights of publicity include participating in modeling as well as promotional activities prior to enrollment that are either charitable or educational uh, as well as those activities sanctioned by the NCAA. Its restrictions 
also highlight the, dupli the, the duplicitous nature of amateurism when one considers how student athletes in major college sports are uniquely exploited. And what I mean by this in this particular case is now we start really getting into the numbers, um, particularly something known as the marginal revenue product or MRP, which is determined by statistically regressing a college team's revenues on the number of players drafted into the NFL or NBA and controlling for other revenue determinants such as a team's market demand and quality of its opponents. So for example, in comparing the marginal revenue product of Division I men's basketball players to the financial cap of an athletic scholarship Lane, Nagel, and Nets in 2014 found that, quote, 60% of all men's basketball players have a monetary contribution to the school that is greater, often substantially greater than the value of the scholarship the player received. According to the authors, even with the recent increase of the limit on athletic scholarships, the majority of players would still produce more revenue for the school than the maximum possible value of his scholarship. In some cases, as much as 80 times the value of his scholarship. For student athletes fortunate enough to get drafted into the NBA, they put the degree to which a school profits from these particular stars in the range of at the low end, $7,000 to $1.8 million, with the average being about $400,000. Similarly, a statistical examination of the relationship between player quality, team performance, and college football revenue by Bergman and Logan revealed that five-star football recruits increase annual revenue by $650,000 while four-star recruits increased revenue by approximately $350,000 and three-star recruits increased revenue by $150,000. I would argue that the foregoing takes on a racialized component when one considers that African-American males receive almost twice as many scholarship offers as non-African-American males in college sports. Indeed, since the beginning of this project, the NCAA's governing board, board of governors, federal and state legislation working group has approved policy changes allowing student athletes to receive compensation for third party endorsements, both related to and separate from athletics, from using their name, image and likeness. Opportunities for student athletes to capture monetary value from their nil include various opportunities from social media, digital and monetization platforms, and businesses they have started and personal appearances. While the NCAA's policy change at first glance may appear as a genuine effort to modernize its rules, I believe that this policy shift will prove more symbolic than substantive. In other words, the NCAA's decision to allow student athletes to receive compensation 
for their name, image, and likeness is self-serving when one considers the current legislative, legal, and political landscape underwriting or undergirding this aforementioned policy correction. For example, in 2015, the U.S. Court of Appeals in the, for the Ninth Circuit in O'Bannon v. NCAA ruled that the NCAA's amateurism policy was subject to the Sherman Act because they regulate commercial activity and the plaintiffs had established that they suffered an injury by showing that absent the NCAA's rules, video game makers would likely pay current and former student athletes for the right to use their name, images, and likeness in college sports video games. Also, both the state of California and the state of Colorado in 2019 passed legislation permitting prospective student athletes to receive compensation for their name, image, and likeness. According to California Senate Bill 206, which was passed in 2019, all California four-year post-secondary institutions, including private colleges and universities, as well as every athletic association, conference, or other group or organization with authority over intercollegiate athletics are prohibited from preventing a student athlete from participating in athletics or from earning compensation as a result of their nil. Likewise, the uh, Colorado bill, Senate Bill 2123, declares that every student athlete enrolled at an institution of higher education in this state has a right to be paid for the use of their name, image, and likeness. The NCAA's recent decision to modernize its policy governing student nils, I believe is a tacit recognition that its monopoly hold was loosening as additional states such as New York, Washington, South Carolina, and Florida have introduced laws proposing that student athletes receive compensation related to their names, images, and likenesses, including endorsements, sponsorships, and autographs. That said, racial capitalism reminds us that the NCAA NILS policy update, I believe, is part of a larger political play to signal to Congress that it not only wants to maintain its tax-exempt status, but also wants to establish antitrust exemption. And so with that, I will uh, end, uh, as I know I'm coming up on my 30-minute limit, but I want to uh, take this opportunity to uh, thank my colleagues in the School of Education, in particular, Department of Curriculum Instruction, as well as my colleagues in Arts and Sciences and American Studies and Af Africana Studies, William & Mary's Law School Center for the Study of Law and Markets, and the Center for Racial and Social Justice. And with that, I will uh, uh, yield the rest of my time.
Professor, uh, if I might, I have a question. Um, sure. What do you think we should do about this? Because I, I, I agree with a lot of what you're, what you're saying. It seems very much like a way to uh, hold all of the economic cards and mm -hmm. exercise terrific leverage over students. Um, you know, uh, this issue is really close to my heart because a really good friend of mine was given a NCA assistance to go to school. And when his college cut the tennis team, he had to leave college and he, he's never actually finished. Mm. Um, you know, there, uh, I mean, what do you think is something that, you know, we can do to perhaps understand this problem or maybe get more leverage over it? Um, uh, great question, Baxter. I think there's a number of things we can do. I think one is we have to, um, debunk this myth, one that once you get a scholarship, that it's guaranteed, you know, and really these scholarships are offered at the discretion of coaches. Um, so even say, say if your friend didn't, uh, the program didn't go away, if there was a change in coach, that the new, the incoming coach could decide, well, I want to bring in my own players, my own people. And then again, decide not to um, extend, uh, you know, a scholarship. But also with that, so I think that's one piece. But I also think the other piece is there has to be some kind of guaranteed mechanism. You know, like there has to be a certain number of years uh, where the, the scholarship is guaranteed regardless of what happens. Suppose whether it be due to injury or say the athlete decides they get burnt out and they no longer want to play. Um, that should be accorded to them as an option as well. Um, you know, outside of that, I think one of the things that we're seeing in this pandemic and <laughs> which particularly I think hits home with us here at William & Mary is that the economics around college sports is funny at best, and I don't mean ha-ha funny, just it's real fishy, the, the numbers, you know, it's it's fuzzy math. And so I think, you know, there needs to be some kind of clear accounting system that, you know, one that allows, pro, it, like if you're gonna go down this road, you have to demonstrate that you're fiscally solvent and you have a means in which to remain fiscally solvent but then also once you decide you're gonna take on a student, they have some uh, assurances, whether it be you know, guaranteed for all four years in terms of funding from that school, regardless of what happens. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I, well, think, it, it I think- It does, it does. I, I have one other question for you and- sure. You know, in the case of injury where the students can't play anymore, is that often a case where they lose their funding? Technically, they could lose their funding. In most instances, coaches will honor the uh, scholarship responsibility. And so the student will um, receive the scholarship. But the, but the caveat to that is that an injured student athlete may be responsible for some of the medical bills associated with that injury. So again, the math around college sports is funny once we start to peel back, um, you know, you know, do a deep dive and kind of get into the, the, the thick of it. Thank you.
So uh, let me just jump in here uh, quick in terms of just the logistics of the question and answer. Um, uh, Jamel, can you see all of the participants on your screen? Um, I can I can toggle between, I'm in the gallery view, and so I toggle between page one and page two. I'm just wondering if it's easiest if we just let participants sort of wave on the screen and let you pick people, or if you'd like me to sort of be a traffic cop and I can keep a queue and send people to you. What's going to be most convenient for you? Uh, probably you being traffic cop, Nate. <laughs> okay, so uh, what I'm going to ask is if is if you would like uh, to to ask a question, just use the raise your hand function, uh, and I will keep uh, a queue and sort of feed um, uh, the the questions um, in. So, uh, with that, if you've got a question, please raise your hand, and we'll make sure that you get a chance to ask it. There was one question in uh, the chat. I don't know if you saw that, but one of the uh, folks raised the question of whether or not um, uh, fans or people who enjoy watching uh, NCAA uh, sports are um, uh, complicit in uh, the evils that you see um, in the system and sort of what would be your response uh, um, as a fan or as someone who just enjoys watching college sports, how should you sort of think about your own participation in this? Oh, you know, um, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. It's, you know, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the talk, you know, the fact that colleges and universities are, have kicked off the football season in the midst of that pandemic um, is disconcerting, but the fan in me, kind of watch. I have to watch, you know, as someone who was fortunate enough to attend two Big Ten institutions and a Pac-12 institution, you know, I, I definitely have some ties there. So I'm definitely guilty. Again, how do we get around that? I'm not sure, but I think we're slowly making steps, particularly as we see in college basketball in particular, where with, the, the, with these new developmental leagues coming online, we see some of the more talented student athletes um, say what you want about uh, LeVar Ball and his treatment and how his, mis his handling or mishandling of his sons, but getting them to kind of circumvent playing college ball in some ways chart blaze the trail and so with the, NC, with the NBA starting its new G League, still having the D League and other um, alternatives coming online, I think we'll eventually get to a place where the most talented athletes will, getting, will be getting compensated for their labor much sooner than later. And so maybe that then might pull some of the money that has traditionally been thrown into college sports, but with college football, it's a little bit more difficult because for the NFL, college football is the farm team. You know, they have rules that state you have to be at least three years removed from high school in order to participate, to be eligible for the NFL draft versus the NCAA versus, versus the NBA, which has a one-year rule, but also with that, you also have to look at the unions. The NBA union is much stronger than the NFL's union. And so, and that has to do in large part with the fact that NBA contracts are guaranteed. NFL contracts are not guaranteed outside of the signing bonus. So I don't know if I, 
I hope that kind of answers the question. Uh, we've got two. We've got two questions. Uh, so Drew Larson, and then after that, and I'm sorry, the only information I have is uh, Dodi Alakoa. Um, so uh, Drew and Dodi Alakoa, and I'm sure I'm. That is not your name, but anyways, uh, those are our next two questions. Uh, Professor Donner, it's good to see you. Thank you so much for your talk. Great uh, seeing you, Drew. I particularly liked um, your, which I'd never heard before, your research on, on where the term amateur came from. Um, and and uh, I'm going to pepper you on that the next time we get together because I thought found that really fascinating. All right. But my specific question um, is really about what the end game is here. Um, so, you know, after reading all about this and kind of given all the, the research you've done, do you see the, the end game, at least for the revenue generating sports, um, you know, non-revenue generating sports is, is obviously a different animal. Is it an open market that you're looking for? Is it really where you know a athlete comes and 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 can sell their services to the highest bidder? Is that is that the best outcome? Man, Ooh. yeah. Um, you know, it's it's really hard to say. I you know, for me, I just I'm just kind of looking at it one step at a time. I haven't really thought that far down the road in turn, but. I would just like to move it somewhere where student athletes are getting compensated. I, I do recognize that once we open that, once we open that door, what that means is for some programs, they may go away because they just financially can't compete. So then what's the alternative for those programs? Um, but then with that, do we then turn, do those institutions become what the Ivy League is, which is basically they don't offer athletic scholarships. So in that, in that respect, they are kind of the purest form, purest form of intercollegiate athletics. I mean, people forget that, you know, years ago at its height, University of Chicago got rid of its uh, football team because of the commercial influence. So I don't know. I think there's going to be this split eventually where I think we'll just have a pure amateur system and then maybe perhaps a pure um, athletic system or maybe even kind of what they do in other countries where they have a club sports model and then also the professional model as well. So it kind of works that way in of itself because what we have now is very much unique to America, the way in which college sports functions. Not many other countries have the model that we have. Um, so I, that's all I got, Drew. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I get it. I, I, I guess, the, and not a question, just kind of a, a comment. I think um, I agree with you that the, the, NI, the NIL changes um, mm -hmm. are, are small. Yeah. But to the extent we, we don't know where we're going, but we want to get somewhere where we're not, it seems to me that the NIL changes are a good next step. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, the other thing is, I think the other thing for me with this is when you look at coaches' salaries. I mean, look at Will Muschamp. He was just let go, but he still gets, the he still gets $15 million to sit home. Like, but then you, but but you come up with all these excuses not to pay the student athletes. No, I'm with you. <laughs> we see eye to eye on this, but I appreciate your time today. I really do. I find it really fascinating. And, uh, uh, thank, thanks for taking my question. No, uh, so on the on the queue, we've got uh, Dodi Alakoa, um, 
Uh, Laura Heyman, Rio, and Simon Stowe. Oh, Lord, Rio and Simon. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Dodi or Doe or... Uh, yeah, you're saying my, my you're saying my name correctly. It's Dodi Olaka, but that's really it's a it's a tough one. So, um, Dr. Donner, thank you so much. Um, my question is about um, kind of how powerful the NCAA is, and if there are groups outside of because it seems like states are pushing back against the NCAA, but if there are other groups um, kind of doing this work or advocating for change within Congress, or um, and also what you think maybe um, the con like Congress's role could be in making some changes here? Uh, there are actually other groups. I mean, uh, a few years back, Kane Coulter, when he was starting quarterback at Northwestern University, actually tried to create a union of student athletes. And it, it, it started to get some traction and then it just kind of faded away. There are a couple of other um, nonprofit organizations that are really trying to do that work. But I think one of the reasons why it's so difficult is because student athletes are inherently a transient population. And so it's very difficult to kind of get that um, lasting presence, that lasting coalition that's needed to kind of really shepherd, you know, legislative change, because as we know, that process, getting legislative change is a slow, slow drip, so to speak, if, if at all, you know, there's a bunch of guardrails, roadblocks, uh, and thing and compromises that uh, along the way. Um, but yeah, I think this whole movement as a whole, starting with the nil, and then I think, again, with particularly at the at the, uh, the with respects to basketball, with star players eventually eventually deciding, you know what, I'm not going to do this. What that means for the sport, I think that then might shift, because I think also universities are going to have to look look themselves in the mirror and just have to have a real financial reckoning. Like you can't continue to produce to continue to operate under the model, which um, as one of my slides had shown, the majority of athletic programs are in the red, stay in the red. And so a lot of these, you know, unless you're talking about like the, the top, the upper echelon programs, like your Alabama's, your Ohio States, most of these programs lose money, um, but they somehow manage to get this money from somewhere to pay these coaches these exorbitant salaries or even, I don't know if you saw in the news last week, University of New Mexico, as a public health safety measure, decided to spend, they're, they're keeping the football team in a hotel, which is costing them approximately $700,000, you know, a week. But I'm like, New Mexico. So, yeah, I, that was a long about way. I don't know if I answered your question. Oh, you did. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Joe. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much for that presentation. I really uh, enjoyed it. Um, so, so my question, and this is not a, a fully formed thought, but I was wondering if in your project you sort of consider, you know, when you're under the, um, the sort of um, the racial capitalism uh, framework that you're um, talking about, if you separate out the sort of um, payment for 
for labor, which, as you know, you know, has historical antecedents and obviously racial implications, and the rights of publicity, which strike me as, as you know, similar in the, in the sort of overall sense about just sort of paying for, for the value that's being contributed, but different in the sense that it is sort of, it's about identity mm-hmm. um, and, the capi- and the capitalization on, on that identity as compared to, as I was saying, sort of payment for labor, which of course has, as you were saying, um, the sort of you know, racial and historical implications, but, but that strike me as maybe a little different in the consideration under that larger umbrella. So I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. No, you, you're absolutely correct. Um, in fact, I had come across a study, I forget, it, it was actually a congressman, I think out of Connecticut, where he did the study looking at, um, at the time when Johnny Manziel, when he was at Texas A&M, just like how much his time at the university, what it meant in terms of donations, but also just in terms of how much he would have garnered just from his image, his name, his likeness, if he was just allowed to profit off of that and that and that did not factor into the labor itself. So I think there is this piece and they've done it for years. And again, that's why in year, in years past, you would see football jerseys, basketball jerseys with the numbers and the student athlete's name. And now all of a sudden you'll just see just the number. That is because of the NCAA realizing that it is, you know, it it, it is down this slippery slope. And so one of the ways in which it's always trying to quote unquote self-correct is by, you know, monitoring itself in this way where they don't have to share the profit. Um, because that did come up in uh, earlier litigation where students were saying, well, people know that number by, by me, by my performance. So no, um, and I think you raise a good point and that's something that I need to consider for future work in terms of really teasing out the value of just the nil versus the value of the labor. Yeah, and there might be just, I mean, you know, and I'd be happy to chat with you offline, a whole literature coming from, for example, the copyright side and sort of, you know, recording studios and things capitalizing on um, Black artists and their performance. So there might be some parallels that you you could dig into there. No, I would love that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Rio? (laughs) Hey, hey, Jamel. Uh, I I showed up a little bit late, so I don't know if anybody... uh, step out on a limb to wish you a happy birthday today, but let me do that. So- uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for sharing your talk with us on your birthday, man. Um, I, I really, I, I love that. And I, I've got the tiniest post-it note, like full of stuff that I wanted to sort of talk about, but I just, I, I kind of want to foreground that one of the things that I find most potent about this work is the really clear connection um, to sort of institutionalized slavery right that's kind of at the heart of racial capital racial mm-hmm. capitalism and i think that that um that for me draws a through line to, to to sort of like um the way in which institutions have profited off the labor of marginalized communities and in this case particularly black communities right black black people um but in this case what i kind of wanted to talk about was i'm thinking about all of this institutional reckoning that's happening nationwide right and it has long long roots but certainly you know, if we just take William and Mary as a small case of this, you know, we have the the, the movements around Ferguson, mm-hmm. uh, 
iteration of Black Lives Matter and then the reiteration around George Floyd, which I think is really pushing institutions to kind of to come to a really deep reckoning on the, their own individual legacies. And so part of my question is in contextualizing it that way is to also think about not just the monetary debt, but, but what academic debt looks like. Mm. So you've got all of these um, student athletes whose labor, and I think that's the right word for it, whose labor um, uh, essentially augments an academic profile of institutions that I think historically have been lacking in their commitment to those student athletes as students, right? Um, and when you see budget cuts, whether they're pandemic related or not, often the, the programs that are cut are the ones that sort of form the foundation for, for academic success and student belonging, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, the, I guess the last little piece I wanted to just introduce was, you know, as we think about concept of restorative justice, and I was thinking about Laura's last question, one of the things that strikes me is that oftentimes these student athletes are really foregrounded as the image of an institution, and yet their daily existence on our campuses is often very much as marginalized, right? They're, they feel in part the way many students of color feel on campus, regardless of their status. And it has me thinking about, you know, I, I used to live in Ecuador, and every guidebook in Ecuador featured a photograph of an indigenous population who were the most marginalized people in those countries, right? So there's this there's this dual labor of putting them on the cover of everything, and yet their daily existence is one of really pretty stark marginalization. So um, I guess if I had to summarize my really overly wordy comment, uh, it's just me being excited about this, was um, I, I may, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about institutional efforts to address academic debt to students. Yeah, Rio, um, you've raised some great points. Actually, what you raised was the way in which I first got interested in this topic. Um, you know, my dissertation was on the educational experiences of black football players in the Big Ten. So I look, I interviewed players at University of Michigan, Wisconsin, and Northwestern. I was also an academic mentor for the men's basketball team and football team at Wisconsin. And that's kind of where I first started to see this, for lack of a better term, academic tracking where you would have these student athletes, um, for the most part, being these majors that just kind of left you scratching your head. Um, and so, and it wasn't just, you know, and then one of the beauties of uh, having done that dissertation was I was able to learn that it wasn't exclusive to say like these public, you know, these football powerhouses, you know, for example, Northwestern, the quote unquote football majors communication studies, you know, um, at Michigan, it was general studies. And so there is like what you said, this academic debt, so to speak. And in fact, a few years back, I believe in the 80s, there was a very famous case, Ross v. Creighton, where a former basketball player at University of Creighton, uh, Kevin Ross, sued Creighton University claiming educational malpractice, where he was making the case that Creighton University knowingly admitted him while knowing he was functionally illiterate. So the case was eventually, the case was subsequently dismissed, but in some respects, he kind of laid that groundwork for this educational debt. Also think about probably the most famous case of an athlete being functionally illiterate, but being passed through is Dexter Manley. If those of us old enough to remember Dexter Manley, um, another famous case, and he kind of became this uh, poster child, so to speak, of 
the exploitive system from an educational standpoint. Um, but I think, Rio, you raise a good point that the educational piece isn't talked about as much just because there's so much money involved and because, you know, sports is it, the commercialization of sports as a whole. So I think that piece gets left out. But, you know, I've talked to colleagues here where they've said um, there are instances of academic tracking because, again, and this is where because scholarships aren't guaranteed per se, student athletes have to structure their lives around the sport. And so when you're talking about the high profile sports, i.e. men's basketball, football, might even want to throw in women's basketball at this stage, particularly at the division one level, much of their lives are structured around uh, the activities related with that sport and not just travel, so to speak, but practice, practice, film session, think training table, things of that sort. So again, when, you're, when your existence is, you know, not guaranteed, but really on the whim of a coach and is like, quote unquote, year to year or semester to semester, you do what you kind of have to do. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know if that touches on or if you wanted to delve a little bit, for, push me a little further on that. No, no, I know that there's other folks that want to chime in. I, yeah, so I'm sure next semester we'll get a chance. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you for that. Nate's left. Um, Simon Stowe, you're the next questioner. I think this, this will have to be our last question because we're pushing close to 2 o'clock here. All right, first of all, happy birthday, old man. Um, Thank you. As, you. as you know, my knowledge of college sports is pretty much confined to knowing which month March Madness is in. So I, you know, I found this completely uh, fascinating. And just want to make a comment and then ask a question. The comment is, I just love how you moved from the idea of like slavery as an analogy for college sports to a genealogy. That to me is just amazing and breathtaking. I think that's so important. The thing I'm really, I just want to ask you about just to sort of push you or is this idea, I, I'm just fascinated by this kind of like similar genealogy of amateurism mm -hmm. and I, I, and how it went from one thing to the other. So I think, think about like in, in Britain, for example, where everything is driven by class, there are two types of rugby. There is rugby league, which is a working class sport where people were paid. And then rugby union until very, very recently was a sport that was played by doctors on the weekend and, you know, and so forth. And then again, you think about cricket, which is a sort of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a game that goes on for five days and stops for lunch and tea. It has to have a very clear colonial, um, you know, ec economic basis. And so I'm just interested, maybe you don't know, but like, do you have any sense of like where this movement, where amateurism became the, 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 the thing you're describing, i.e. like not getting paid for, like when it became associated with the disenfranchised as opposed to the enfranchised, I guess? Uh, yeah, sure. It, the shift came again with, well, it, it came from multiple parts but mostly with the commercialization of sports. And so it was through a series of um, various lawsuits where we, we obviously don't have time to discuss, but um, from universities suing the NCAA because they wanted their own ability to negotiate television contracts to, again, players in the past suing um, for compensation. And so amateurism was this term that just got thrown out there. 
And so that kind of then led to, um, and so that led to it. But then again, with anything through the, through the legal process, that decision kept getting reaffirmed, reaffirmed, where we're at the point where it just got taken for granted. But no one has really done the uh, due diligence to really kind of peel back the layers. I'm like, uh, no, amateurism doesn't mean what you think it means. And so, yeah, it's one of those things, you, you know, it, over time we tell ourselves, that you tell yourself a lie long enough, you, be, you, get, you begin to believe that it's true. <laughs> Did I answer your question, Dr. Stone? As ever. Somebody yes. else, I'm sorry. If somebody else has a really quick question, um, I don't see any other hands up, but we can ask that. Happy birthday. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, happy birthday, Professor Donner, and thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. This was a terrific talk. Thank and you. And also thanks to those of you who attended. Uh, we appreciate that as well. And everyone, uh, have a great rest of your semester. Thank Again, you. Thanks so much.